good to be with you this morning and to, this evening, okay, I'm tired, <laughs> and to have this opportunity to stand before you this evening. Uh, I see several visitors with us, and it's good to have you with us as well. I'm going to continue the theme of last week and talk about stuff from our Bible classes. Um, the thing is, instead of a review, this one's going to be a preview because I'm in the foundations class. Um, we're going to start in the period of the judges and then carry on through the Bible narrative a little bit before um, bringing it back to us. We're going to be talking about the Israelites and their conquest of the land. You see, the Israelites were given a command that we'll read in just a minute. Utterly destroy the inhabitants of the land that you go to possess. But we know what happens. In the period of the judges, they have failed to do that. And over and over again, they are oppressed by people because of their disbelief. Because they turn from God, then God brings other nations in to oppress the people. In that oppression, they cry out for deliverance. God, in his mercy, sends a judge to deliver them. The judge does that through the power of God. And then there's peace in the land. There's peace for the time of that judge. But once that judge dies, they leave the Lord again and return to the idols and do worse than their fathers before them. And then it happens all over again. So let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 7 and look at the command. Because the Israelites were given the command to utterly destroy the inhabitants of the land. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. Here's that command. Utterly destroy the inhabitants of the land. The next passage, Deuteronomy 12, starting in verse 1, goes a little bit further and explains a little more what God wants from the people. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord God, the God of your fathers, is giving you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills under every green tree. You shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. So the first one they were told to utterly destroy the people. The second one, we're told a little bit more about why. You're not only supposed to destroy the people, but also how they worshipped their gods. And the third one, we get even a little bit more explanation in Deuteronomy 20, starting in verse 16. But of the cities of these peoples, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. 
but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all their abomination, which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. There's our answer. Lest they teach you to follow them and lead you away from me, away from God. That was their command. But we've already said they were disobedient. They settled for partial obedience. Because by this point, they're already in the land. They've possessed the land. They're living in it. They've taken the cities. But they haven't driven out the people. And we'll see that in these next few verses. Judges chapter 1. I'm not going to read all of this. I'm going to be skipping around just a little bit. But in verse 21, Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Skip down to verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean. And so on. For the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute but did not completely drive them out. See, now these inhabitants were more valuable to them alive than destroyed. They could give them money. They could do hard labor for them. Maybe, maybe they didn't have to destroy these people. Or maybe they've been sitting in the land long enough that they're comfortable. They've gotten comfortable around these people and so they don't want to get up and get busy, and drive out the people of the land. Verse 32, So the Asherites fell among the Canaanites, because they failed to drive them out. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, but they dwelled among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were put under tribute to them. It's all good. They put them under tribute, Right? Or and the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains. Wow, the Danites didn't even get to take their inheritance, but they were pushed away from it. Who was God going to be with? The Danites or the Amorites? It was the people of Dan, right? God told them to go and take their land. But what does it say? For they would not allow them to come down into the valley, and the Amorites were determined to dwell there. They were more determined to dwell there than the Israelites who had God on their side. They were disobedient. So God comes to them in Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 1. The angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bachim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. You shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. But they were in the land. They had conquered Jericho, Ai, they were living in Shechem and these other places. They were in the land. They were not wholly obedient 
to God's command. They were partially obedient. And to God, here in verse 2, it's the same as being disobedient. Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. Boy, do we see that over and over again. Through the period of the judges, all through the united and divided kingdom, until eventually the kingdom is removed from Judah. The line of David is hanging on by a thread, carefully controlled by God. And one day, the nation of Israel is removed from being God's chosen people because of their disobedience. And it starts way back here with their failure to drive out the inhabitants of the land. Because they were disobedient? Yes. They were partially obedient. These nations around them affected their desire for a king. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, they say, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. If there weren't nations around them to influence them, then they wouldn't have wanted a king to rule over them. Samuel here goes on to tell them what a king will do to him. He says, he will take your sons and your daughters, take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your oxen. But in verse 19... Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They want a king to be like the other nations. And then they worship the gods of the other nations. We see this over and over again through the period of the judges alone. We talked about it this morning with Gideon. After the death of Gideon, they returned to the worship of the Baals and the Asterisks because of the nations around them. But we're going to go to 1 Kings chapter 11 and see how these foreigners affected Solomon. Solomon, who had been approached twice by God. Solomon, who was the wisest man to ever live. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon, 
What did Solomon do? His wives influenced him and turned him away from the Lord. The wives of the people around them. Besides infiltrating the worship, they suffered physical attacks, right? And we said, we said earlier that these were often punishments by God on the people because of their disobedience. In Judges chapter 2, really an overview of that whole period, uh, picking up in verse 14 from where we left off earlier, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked. In obeying the commandments of the Lord, they did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and to bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. Again, the people are dealing with this suffering from this because they were partially obedient to God's commandment. Well, they're not the only ones. We harp on them a lot, but there were others. King Saul was partially obedient to God's law in 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel 15, if you'll go there with me. God says the iniquity of the Amalekites is full. It is time for them to be destroyed. So in verse 3 he says, Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then in verse 8, he also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and oxen, the fatlings and lambs and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. They did the parts that pleased them. They used God for their own purposes. I don't know why Saul would spare the king. Maybe for diplomatic favor. Maybe for money. But he saw some kind of gain in keeping Agag alive. The people saw these animals. How are these animals going to affect their worship to God? 
They don't have minds. They're not going to be able to influence their worship. But they belong to the Amalekites, the ones who had ambushed the Israelites in their weakness. They were part of this nation, and God didn't want any part of them among his people. Saul completed the part of God's command that pleased him. We're going to see Samuel's response to this, God's response here. Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul was disobedient. He did probably 99.8% of what he was supposed to. But he failed to do 100% of it. And for that, Samuel said he was disobedient. And he was punished for it. Not only did he do wrong, it says he did evil in the sight of the Lord. But we're not going to just talk about the ones who were disobedient. The ones that we lift up as heroes of faith, the ones mentioned in Hebrews 11, they were the ones who did all of what God commanded them. We're going to start by talking about Noah. Noah, who had likely never seen rain before, was told, build an ark, because I'm going to destroy the earth with water. Noah did. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him. So he did. He did everything. He gathered the supplies, built the ark. God brought the animals to him. He got them into the ark. And if you've been to the ark encounter or even just seen it, you know, pictures of it or a video tour of it, it's a massive, massive structure. In Genesis chapter 12, we get to Abraham. Abraham was told, leave your country, leave your family, and go to a land that I will show you. And in verse 4, so Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him. But that's not where the showing of Abraham's faith ended. He was given these promises. Through your seed, all nations of the earth shall be blessed. I will make your name great. You will have a great nation and you will dwell, or you will, your descendants will possess the land that you sojourn in. So Abraham, at a hundred years old, has a son. He has a son named Isaac, and he loves this son. But God tells him, take Isaac, the son whom you love, and sacrifice him. So Abraham arose early in the morning to accomplish that. When asked where is the sacrifice, he says the Lord will provide. He has complete faith in God. And in verse 12, he has prepared to kill Isaac. 
But in verse 12, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. He was wholly obedient to God. We harped on the Israelites, but they did some things right too. And we're really talking about this right now. Most of us are. The God has given the instructions for the tabernacle, for the priests, for the order of their worship. And at the end of it, at the end of Exodus, in verse or in chapter 39, verse 42, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did all the work. Then Moses looked over all the work, and indeed they had done it as the Lord had commanded, just so they had done it, and Moses blessed them. They did what was right before God. They gave all this gold, all these rich fabrics, their time, their resources, their effort, their sweat to accomplish this. They did what the Lord commanded them. But of course, our ultimate example of obedience, the ultimate showing of obedience was that of Jesus. He was obedient to the point of death. Matthew 26, verse 39. O oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We know what happens. After this, men come, take Jesus by force. He's tried and beaten and hung on a cross. He goes through it willingly because he wanted to be obedient to the Father. Paul sums up his mindset in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being, in fa- being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He was equal with God. He was God, John chapter 1 says. He humbled himself to be a man to endure terrible sufferings for you and for me. Jesus was not content with partial obedience to the Father. He didn't just come and live and when it was time to die, say, I can't do this. He was perfect. Because he was obedient to the point of death. In Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. 
Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Jesus learned to obey through the things he suffered. We go through difficult things in the service of God. Or we should. Because the faithful Christians before us have. And we've been promised that we will go through difficult things if we are being faithful to God. We learn obedience as a child, not when we're told to eat chocolate, but when we're told to go and mow the grass or rake leaves or do the dishes knowing we'll get nothing but blisters and sore feet and a whole lot of sweat. That's when we learn obedience, when it's tough, when it's difficult. It's the same way as Christians. We don't learn to be obedient when we don't drink alcohol because we wouldn't even like it anyway. If it's just never appealed to us, then that's not what makes us obedient. If we never desire to smoke a cigarette, then it doesn't take much to be obedient in that. We truly become obedient when we're faced with our deepest struggle and we choose to obey God rather than our pleasures and desires. That is when we learn obedience. That's when we're faithful. What was the result of the faithfulness of Jesus? Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's how we're obedient. When we confess freely and openly and joyfully that Jesus is our Savior. On on the last day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The question for us is, will we do it joyfully, happily, and readily? Or will it be grudgingly between our teeth? Because we never believed it until it was too late. Will we be one of those who Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 22? I'm sorry, Matthew 7 verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven... Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Many of those proclaiming Christ are partially obedient. But we've seen two different accounts of that partial obedience being equivalent 
to disobedience. And that hasn't changed. So the question is, are we fully obedient to God this evening? If Jesus were to come back now, will we be among those gladly, proudly proclaiming Christ or grudgingly admitting that he is Lord? Have you been baptized for the remission of sins? Have you believed that Jesus is Lord? Are you ready to proclaim it tonight? Or have you wandered from God? Have you wandered from his fold? He's calling us back. Are you ready to return to Jesus tonight? If we can help you this evening, please come as we stand and sing together.